Welcome to Conversations from the Pale Blue Dot. Today I interview medical writer Zachary Moore. When science comes up against religion, religion has to adjust. It just has to, or it will look very stupid. Remember to visit commonsenseatheism.com for more episodes and articles about God, science, and morality. Dr. Zachary Moore is a medical writer in Dallas, Texas, and the author of such popular works as Apolipoprotein E Inhibition of Vascular Cell Proliferation and Neointimal Formation in Vivo Requires Inducible Nitric Oxide Synthase. Actually, he's better known as Dr. Zach from the podcasts Evolution 101 and Apologia. Dr. Zach, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Luke. I'm a big fan of apopleoprotein E inhibition. <laughs> it's actually uh, apolipoprotein E, but uh, okay, thank we'll, you. Leave my, we'll leave my graduate work out of this. There's no, no need to dredge that up. Well, anyway, this is kind of an unusual show for my podcast because I have no plans to do a show on the periodic table of elements or how cancer works or the standard model of particle physics or general relativity, but I do want to talk to you about evolution today because I keep being surprised at how many of my Christian and Muslim readers either don't accept the theory or don't understand it at all. So maybe the way I can say that evolution is relevant to philosophy of religion podcast is to point out that most of the reason I think that people don't understand or accept evolution is because of the religious lies about it and religious resistance to it, you know. The church gave up opposing heliocentrism or Big Bang theory a long time ago, most of them anyway, but they haven't uh, given up the fight up against evolution. Anyway, I want to thank you for your podcast, Evolution 101, where you explain evolutionary concepts, and uh, thanks for coming on this show to help us out. So let's start with the basics. What is the theory of evolution, and what is the fact of evolution? In a nutshell, right? evolution is change. Uh, in biology itself, it's the change of biological organisms. The big deal is that this idea of changing forms in nature is actually relatively new. You know, the ancients, um, Aristotle taught about the so-called scala naturae, the, the great chain of being in which everything had a very specific place because that's where God put it. All the things that were in existence, that were in reality, were arranged according to this structure, according to this great chain of being, and everything had a relationship to each other. You know, certain things were higher to other things, you know, so at the very top was God, then the angels were below him, the you know, humans were below them, and then animals, and then plants and minerals. But in that chain, humans are a distinct subset. They occupy a distinct space in that chain, distinct from animals, mm -hmm. right? So, so humans are special. That idea has really been per pervasive in philosophy, and it, it's very hard to construct philosophical theories that I think don't treat humans as special. If you tried to, to force philosophers to do that, I'd, I'd be curious to see exactly um, what it would look like. I guess it looks something like Peter Singer, who is, I don't know if he's one of the few philosophers um, that does treat humans philosophically consistently with evolutionary theory, but he's, um, he's at least the only one that I know about. Well, utilitarians ever since Bentham have been pretty straight up about saying that humans aren't special and that uh, animals have desires that are morally relevant too. But yeah, the philosophy, I think you're right, is still grounded on this premise that humans are special and it, 
it's simpler that way. It makes the equation simpler if we don't have to think that there's a continuum and we can just say humans are special. Right. And in Christianity, Judaism, Islam, mankind is created by God, special. We are made in the image of God. So to contradict that is to contradict something that's very fundamental in, in most theology, at least Western theology. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's why it gets a lot of resistance, to, to say the least which, uh, in Christianity specifically, to accept evolutionary theory is, unless you're being extremely creative about it, is to reject the creation account in the entire first dozen chapters or so in Genesis. Because the, the, the idea of an Adam and an Eve for the entire human species doesn't make sense scientifically. So if you give up the Adam and Eve story, on the one hand, well, that's just one of many myths that are in the, uh, the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, so who, who really cares? And Jews tend to not worry about it so much because for them it is just you know, one of many myths. But for Christians, it's a little bit different because it can't just be a story because the Apostle Paul uses that as justification for the saving uh, sacrifice of Jesus, right? Because the story of the Garden of Eden becomes not just uh, the fall of Adam and Eve, but it becomes the fall of all of humanity and the introduction of original sin. And so therefore, according to Paul, since uh, through Adam all men have sinned, therefore through Jesus all men will be saved. If you take out that story of Adam and original sin, then there's really no need for Jesus. And so all of Christian theology sort of collapses after that point, unless you can remake it into something completely different. So that's probably why we have more resistance to evolution than we did to heliocentrism or Big Bang Theory. Absolutely. And this is just the way of it. When science comes up against religion, religion has to adjust just has to or it will look very stupid so you've either got to change your view or you're going to be completely marginalized there are still flat earthers today who very emphatically insist that the the earth is flat you know all these pictures of a round earth are fake and they're totally marginalized and i mean they're barely even a punchline most people don't even know that they exist and young Earth creationists are just a little bit up the scale from there. They're pretty marginalized by now, but still pretty common. They're very common. I've actually been to the Creation Museum in Petersburg, Kentucky. I was there bright and early, and there were hundreds of people lined up. Even when I got in there, it was still choked with people. I mean, part of the reason for that is because if you want to be infused with that experience, if, if you want to have those types of ideas reinforced, there's no better place to go. Where's my Flat Earth Museum? I want to stare at the waterfall flowing off the edge of the Earth. <laughs> right. That would be fun. Hmm. Well, let's get back to evolution. What does it mean when scientists say that evolution is a theory and that evolution is a fact? Right, so in population genetics, evolution is typically defined as the change in allele frequency in a population over time. And that's very easily observable. You can take any model organism, you can pick any gene that you like, and you can sample that in a population as you change different variables for that population or as those variables change naturally. You can see, you know, 
different colorations change in a population for one reason or another. Classic example, of course, are the pepper moths uh, in Britain uh, going from white to black. Um, so all those things, those are facts. We can see those things happen. The question is for theory, right? And so colloquially, a theory is, you know, I've got a theory about why those cookies are missing from the jar. <laughs> Johnny, get over here. <laughs> I mean, that, that's that's kind of how we use the word colloquially. In science, a theory is something very different. So in science, a theory is a story that is told based on the evidence. You've got to get all this to make sense somehow, where everything comes together and everything is part of the story. Now, it may not be the right story. It may not be what actually happens. You know, all these scientists working together studying, you know, organism metabolism, let's say, they may have come up with a different way to tell the metabolism story that makes more sense based on the evidence that they found than what was currently understood. But they can't just tell any story, right? They have to tell a story that incorporates all the evidence. So the current story of evolution is not just something that somebody made up. It's a framework that incorporates all the evidence going back to, to Darwin, in fact, pre-Darwin. People were finding fossils and all sorts of things before Darwin was doing what he was doing. He was one of the early guys. He was the one that told the first story, really, is, is what it comes down to. He looked at all these data, and he said, you know, how do you explain this? You know, why these old fossil bones look a lot like these modern bones that we see today, but they're a lot bigger. What happened? What's the story there? And so that's what the theory of evolution is. It's, it's a story that explains the data, but it's never separated from the data. So there might be a different story that you can tell that, that would incorporate all the evidence. But you're going to be really hard-pressed to tell a story that incorporates everything and ends up fundamentally different. Like typically uh, when you look at creationists you know, attacking evolution, usually what they want to do is they want to throw away some of these facts. You know, they want to toss them out. Like they want to toss out Tiktaalik, for example. Say, well, that's not an actual transitional fossil. Or they want to toss out Archaeopteryx, or they want to toss out the E. coli experiments that Richard Lenski did and is still doing. You know, they want to toss out this or that. And yeah, if you toss out enough of these facts of evolution, these evolutionary facts, you can tell a different story <laughs> that doesn't look like what we understand now. But if you're honest and you take the facts and you, you try to tell a story about it, there's just no way to, to tell that story without coming up something something like evolutionary theory. And if somebody out there thinks that they can tell a better story that makes fewer assumptions, that incorporates all the evidence, then you know more power to them because those tend to be the better theories that make the fewest assumptions. Well, if somebody actually proposed an alternative to evolutionary theory, they would probably become one of the most famous scientists in the history of ever. Well, you would at least get the Nobel Prize. Uh, and that's a good thing. We want our scientific theories to represent reality as best as possible. But in order to challenge that, you have to submit additional data. And that's one thing that I have not seen from any creationist or intelligent designer. There was um, Stephen Meyer, who is one of the head guys with the Discovery Institute. He was bragging that he and another molecular biologist, I can't remember the guy's name, 
unfortunately, but he said that they were working to uh, disprove the idea that the uh, bacteriflagellum could have been derived from the type 3 secretory system uh, in the bacteria, and that they were conducting experiments, and they were going to be putting together a manuscript, and it was going to be published, and it was going to contradict the idea. It was going to show that the uh, bacteriflagellum came first. Well, I know uh, research moves slow in academics, but you know if he was bragging about it three years ago, we certainly should have seen something by now. Here in Dallas last year, they had a Christian booksellers convention. I also got to meet the president of the other big creationist group, the Institute for Creation Research, ICR. So I went up to the guy and I said, hey, I've got this fantastic idea. I said, there's a guy in Glen Rose, Texas. His name is Carl Baugh. He claims to have unlocked the scientific secret of the pre-flood environment. According to Carl Baugh, there are three components that are required to recapitulate the way the, the Earth's environment was before the flood. Number one, you have to increase the partial pressure of oxygen. Number two, you have to increase the ambient magnetic field. And number three, uh, you can only expose the environment to pink light. Pink light. It's in the Bible, I'm sure. Yeah, it has something to do with a solid hydrogen shield around the Earth and only letting certain wavelengths through. And Carl Baugh is right now building a contraption. He's got a little tiny uh, creation evidence museum down there. He's building this facility. It's like a big metal tube that he's going to seal up, pressurize, fill with oxygen, run a magnetic field all along it, and you know, screw in a bunch of pink light bulbs. And I was telling the guy, the president of ICR, I said, this is the perfect opportunity. So what you guys need to do is you know pick a model organism, something that grows quickly and is susceptible to mutations, will grow one colony inside his contraption, will grow another one right next to it, you know, outside so it's not affected by the pre-flood conditions, and then all we have to do is measure the mutation rate. And if his hypothesis is true, if this really is a pre-flood environment that will slow down mutations and revert things to their perfect state, then that will be easily measurable. And, you know, we can publish that. I said, you know, I'll volunteer my time to help you guys write the manuscript and submit it, you know, to Nature, because obviously, you know, Nature would be interested in, in publishing that. And the look he gave me, like, mm, it was almost like I had, like, a piece of crap on my face, and he wanted to punch it off of me. <laughs> you know, his mouth worked, and he didn't quite know what to say, and finally he said, well, I know Carl Baugh, and uh, I don't think we're going to be doing that. <laughs> and then he just walked away. <laughs> he knows. I mean, he's he's got to know that that is BS. It's total BS. But my point is that if they really thought that what they're advocating was true, then they should put their money where their mouth is. That's why scientists don't take these guys seriously. It's because they know that there's no way for them to put any weight of evidence behind their hypotheses. There's no way for them to evaluate them. And they also know that they're not interested in evaluating them. If they were, if they took themselves seriously as scientists and really conducted experiments and published them and opened up their laboratories, instead of making museums, you know, open up a laboratory that people can walk through and look at and see you conducting these experiments. Now that would be impressive. Yeah, they won't be doing experiments anytime soon because I think even they know they can't produce any evidence for their theories. Right, right. 
Well, let's talk about some standard creationist objections to evolution. And I think these ones that we'll talk about first just really prove that somebody hasn't spent five minutes of their lives on the Wikipedia page for evolution. Uh, but uh, number one, if we evolved from monkeys, why are monkeys still around? If you evolved from your grandparents, why are your cousins still around? So we didn't evolve from monkeys. Humans and monkeys have common ancestry, and we can we can demonstrate that you know not only by you know, common features, common you know, homology, but also uh, in terms of you know genetics. And we even have uh, two chimpanzee chromosomes fused into one in the human genome. So I mean, it, it could not be more obvious that we have a shared ancestry. Okay, so number two, uh, pre-Wikipedia confusion. Evolution is unscientific because it's not testable or falsifiable. It makes claims about events that were not observed and can never be recreated. We can't recapitulate the entirety of Earth's history in the laboratory. That's true. But that doesn't mean that we can't learn anything about it. If that were true, then geology wouldn't be possible. Archaeology wouldn't be possible. I mean, I mean, what? there's no point to history. I mean... It's not about going back and making sure what happened in the past. It's about taking what evidences we have available to us here in the present and telling the most reasonable story that makes sense of all the data that we have. If the only way to make sense of the data that we have right now are to assume something in the past, then yeah, that's absolutely scientific. Like let's take the big meteor crater in Africa, 100 football fields uh, in diameter. And you take a picture of it from above, and it's this, you know this perfect circle, and it looks like something slammed into the to the earth right there. You know, and you take samples of the soil, and you find uh, trace minerals and and other isotopes that aren't typically found on the earth, uh, and more typically found in asteroids or things like that. You take all those facts, and you put that together. What's the most reasonable story? That a big freaking meteor hit the earth and made a big mark. Well, I think you're unfairly ruling out the hypothesis that God did it. Well, yeah. Well, we don't really have need of that hypothesis. Well, and the other thing here is that we're not just trying to figure out what happened in the past. We're trying to figure out how the universe works so that we can use it. So, you know, we figure out that this is what happens to biological organisms that are hereditary and have DNA and all that kind of thing. And then we apply that to you know, keeping up with rapidly evolving pests that are destroying crops or um, evolutionary medicine or all kinds of things. And so the theory definitely produces many predictions that can be tested. And then when we figure out how the universe is working, we can apply them. And that's just as true of evolutionary theory as any other scientific theory. Oh, absolutely. And well, in fact, the discovery of Tiktaalik by um, Neil Shubin right. in 2005 was a great example of predictive evolution. So Shubin had done his research on early um, tetrapods. He knew that there was a very specific time scale in which, you know, if the story that we had so far, if the story made sense, if it, if it reflected reality, then you would expect to find animals that were transitional between basically a fish form and a tetrapod form right about that period of time. And so he took, you know, all the best geologic information and geographic information and put that together and identified a place that would be his best bet, if you will, to finding evidence of that creature. So he made a prediction. He said, if I go to this place and dig around, 
then I will probably find an animal that is transitional between a fish and a tetrapod. And that's exactly what he found. It took him a while. It took him years of going to this little tiny island in just absolutely nowhere of Canada, um, up in the Arctic Circle. But he eventually found it. And he found it because the science, his science was good, and the prediction that he made based on that science and based on the theory of that science was accurate. So, number three, pre-Wikipedia confusion. Evolution cannot explain how life first appeared. Right. Well, for me, this is just a category mistake. It's like blaming geologists for not having a geological account of the origins of the universe. That's just a different subject. Yeah, so there's continuing assessment and exploration, experimentation on that subject. It's not something that is a burden of evolutionary theory. And the reality of the situation may be that, you know, since we're finding that amino acids form readily in lots of different conditions, the reality of the situation may be that life actually formed many different places and maybe at different times and maybe had fits and starts. And, you know, maybe we can't know which one in particular it was. Maybe that information has been lost to time. Well, and the fact that we don't know how life came from non-life or, you know, maybe we'll get unlucky and we'll never know because that's just, you know, like you said, lost to history. Uh, none of that changes any of the facts about how life evolved from, you know, previous ancestors and all of that, the whole phylogenetic tree. Oh, right. No, absolutely. Well, then how about uh, pre-Wikipedia confusion number four? The second law of thermodynamics says that systems must be more disordered over time. Uh, so you can't get less complex and ordered things going to more complex and ordered things like uh, from bacteria to fish to humans or whatever. Right, so that's actually a, a closed system in thermodynamics. The entropy of a closed system increases over time. The Earth is not a closed system. We receive energy continuously from the sun, so we're not a closed system, so that doesn't apply. So pre-Wikipedia confusion number five Evolution works by random chance, and there's no way complex life could evolve by random chance. That would be like a tornado going through a scrapyard and assembling a Boeing 747. So random chance is just one aspect of the selection process. So the mutation rates are largely random. Other stochastic phenomena like you know, population bottlenecks or geographic phenomena that split up a, a population into, or a disease, or, or those types of things, those are random. So there, there are these random processes that are at work on populations. But it's not all random. It's random things that sort of shake up the bowl. But every time you dump out the bowl, it has to pass through a very specific filter. Right, yeah. It's kind of like in artificial selection, you know, again, the particular genes that all these animals have uh, starts out at least fairly random in the mutations and everything that they have, but then that doesn't make artificial selection random. Right, exactly. So moving on, I think we can dispel a whole lot of myths about evolution all at once by getting a proper understanding of speciation. You know, the problem with species concept, of course, is that our system for classifying evolved creatures was invented before we understood how evolution works, and nature just has no interest in fitting into our convenient categories. 
so what is a species and how does speciation actually work right well yeah you're, you're right actually it goes back to um linnaeus and linnaeus was a very religious guy and he thought that he had this grand task figured out where he could uh, sort of pay tribute to the complexity of of god's creation by describing every single thing in it he actually did a pretty decent job you know we still use pretty much the Linnaean system today, you know, kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, species, all that. Now, the the definition of species itself is complicated. And even Linnaeus sort of recognized this at the time because there were some things that he kind of wanted to describe as species, which were themselves actually like hybrids, you know, and they, they didn't quite fit into a specific category like he wanted them to. But for the most part, it worked. Now, in Darwin's day, if you went out into the field and you found an organism that you had never seen before, you'd never seen described before, you would kill it and bring it back to a museum and show it to whoever was the head naturalist at the museum. And he would you know, verify that nobody else had ever seen this before. And this was something completely new. And then he would put this specimen in a drawer. And then that particular animal would be the type specimen for all other members of that species that were found. And so if you went out again and you found something that looked just like that, you would have to catch it and kill it and then bring it back to the museum. And to verify that it was another member of that species, they would actually pull out the first dead one from the drawer and compare them, like literally just hold them up together and say, okay, does this look like the other one? That's called typology. It's really not the best way of doing things because, you know, let's say, for example, the type specimen that you found happens to be the one weird one in the entire population. Yeah. You find something else and you compare it and, you know, this doesn't look like that. Well, it must be a different species. Well, but not really because the type specimen was actually a mutant. So. Yeah. Or you think of how many species of dog would we think we would have if we did that? Yeah, really. <laughs> Hundreds. So the other way to do it is by comparing homology, the length of the leg or the number of teeth in the skull, the shape of the pelvis or you know whatever. You're actually comparing one specimen to another without a type specimen and you're you're basing it on specific measurements of the body. And that works pretty well, reasonably well except that there are some species that are very much like each other. They look almost exactly the same. They have almost the same exact characteristics, except they don't interbreed. And so that has sort of become the defining standard for how to determine what a species is, is if you've got a population of organisms that interbreed, then that is considered a species. Because by and large, the ability to interbreed also carries with it similarity in homology, and anything in that population should be comparable to a type specimen if you if you had one. There's problems with that too, because we can, just like with Linnaeus, there are certain things that we can find that are hybrids. For example, the mule, right? A mule, what species is the mule? It's not. It's a hybrid. It's a hybrid between a donkey and a horse. 
So what do you do with that exactly? I mean, it's got its own name. It's got its own sort of characteristics to recognize as a, as a different category from a donkey, different category from a horse, and yet it's not exactly its own species because mules, for the most part, cannot interbreed. There are rare female mules that actually can breed back with a donkey. Um, that's very rare. Adding to the complexity even further, there are these phenomena called ring species where you have a geographically linked series of subspecies in which if you compare the, the geographically adjacent subspecies, there is interbreeding possible between them. But if you compare the most geographically diverse subspecies, they cannot interbreed. So it's a very strange situation where you have, technically you have the potential for gene flow from one subspecies to the far other side, but it has to go through all these subspecies. So if the two ends were to ever meet, they couldn't interbreed. So again, very sort of a strange situation. And I don't know that there's really any good way to get around that. And in fact, we might not need to. Again, this idea of there being a species goes all the way back to these old ideas, basically these platonic forms that go back to philosophy. And so it's a, it's a philosophical imperative to consider these things species. It's not a scientific imperative. You know, science doesn't demand that we give these things specific names and characterize them specifically. You know, science is just, you know, making notes about, you know, the way things actually are. If the way things actually are are more complicated than what philosophy can imagine, well, so much the worse for philosophy. <laughs> that just keeps happening. It's so frustrating. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe we could talk a bit about the evidence for evolution that is found not just in the rocks, but in creatures living today. Things like vestigial organs, how embryos develop, the so-called poor de designs that were obviously evolved rather than created by an intelligent, benevolent designer. Could you explain some of those types of evidence? How about I'll do molecular evidence for the evolution of humans? Sure, yeah. And so modern evolutionary theory has gone through a number of changes since Darwin. Number one, Gregor Mendel, who some people may know as the guy who bred pea flowers and made notes about you know the, the rate at which he could expect purple flowers versus white flowers. He observed these specific traits being inherited in discrete ways. And that concept is basically what led to um, the development of genetics which was added into Darwinian evolution and became population genetics. Uh, now, of course, we have uh, not just genetics at our disposal, but we have genomics. So we actually have the entire sequence of all the DNA that's in a particular organism sequenced out. And we can look at it. You can actually download it. You can go to the NCBI website, the National Center for Biotechnology Information, and download the human genome. Uh, you can download the chimpanzee genome. You can download the dog genome. What it really comes down to, especially when you're talking about evolution and creationism, I mean, nobody really cares about whether a couple species of fish are related to each other. Nobody really cares about how many different subspecies of field mice there may be. But when it comes to the evolution of humans, then everybody gets really excited, right? So we can't possibly be evolved because that would make us less special. 
the genetic information that's flowing through your blood right now is all you need to validate the evolution of humans. And one way you can kind of think about this is, you know, picture your family, right? You know, any siblings you may have and your parents. So if you were to gather all of you in a room and I came over, I might not necessarily know that you're all related. But I could spend a couple minutes and look at you. You know, I could compare your, your facial features. I could compare your height. I could compare your hair color, you know, all this. I could probably figure out that you're related. I could probably figure out who the siblings are. I could probably figure out who the parents are. That's not that hard to do. Now, instead of you and your family, maybe think about you and half a dozen just random people off the street. And you all get put in the same room. And then I come in. And my task is to figure out well, wait a minute, who's related to who here? Well, I could probably I could probably figure out something pretty close, honestly. I could at least try to figure out who's more related to somebody else. If you happen to be Caucasian, if there's another Caucasian person in, in the room, then I can say, yeah, I bet you two are probably more closely related than anybody else in the room. If there's any African Americans, somebody with lighter skin, They've probably got a white person in their ancestry. So they're probably more closely related to you than the rest of the people, and so on and so forth. And if you want to carry that past guessing, you can actually do DNA sequencing, right? So we have you know paternity sequencing, you know, using DNA, and there's even more sophisticated sequencing that can be done that you can send off. I think National Geographic is doing this where they are trying to figure out where people come from geographically, where their ancestors were, and you can uh-huh. sort of track, you know, using your Y chromosome, if you're a man, you can track where your your male ancestors would have came from. And so using that, you know, comparing our DNA, I can probably uh, predict which random people are more closely related. Well, keep that same technique in your mind, that same idea, but instead of having half a dozen humans in a room, let's take a half a dozen primates. Let's take one human, one chimp, one gorilla, one orangutan, and one gibbon, all the apes. Well, we can do the same thing. We, I can go in there and I can look and I can see, um, you know, similarities in facial features. I can see, you know, similarities in hair color. I can figure out who is more closely related to whom. And then, of course, you know, just like I did with the humans, I can look at the DNA and see where things stack up, where the closest similarities are. And if you do that, if you look at the molecular evidence, you'll see that humans are most closely related to chimpanzees. If you look at our DNA. You can also look at Dodge's retroviruses. Uh, a retrovirus is a virus that inserts its DNA into your DNA, into your genome. Like HIV is a retrovirus, which is why you can never really be cured of HIV. It'll always sort of stick with you because of that. If a retrovirus inserts itself into, if you're a male, one of your spermatocytes, if you're a female, one of your oocytes, and that happens to get passed along to the next generation, then that's going to be built into the genome, and it's going to be a a unique retroviral insertion that'll just sit there. It doesn't really do anything. It doesn't really help you or hurt you. It just sort of is a marker, is a little, you know, tag like a scar. You know, it'll always be there. Well, we can compare, if we look at at the genomes of humans and the other apes, we can see that the most similarities... The most retrovirus insertions that are held in common are held in common between humans and chimps. And then the next most held in common are between humans, chimps, and gorillas. And then the next most common between humans, chimps, gorillas, and orangutans. And then finally humans, chimps, gorillas, orangutans, and gibbons. Which means that you can take those similarities and construct basically a cladogram or a phylogenetic relationship 
that if you're basing it only on shared insertions, that will place humans and chimpanzees right next to each other. And it basically recapitulates the entire primate clade in terms of their relationships. I mean, that is proof positive beyond shadow of a doubt that humans not only have evolved, but humans have evolved as a member of the primate family. We are primates, we are apes, and our closest cousins are chimpanzees. This is clear science. This is as clear as anything else that's out there. It's another one of those evolutionary facts. It's just indisputable. But this is the interesting thing. So I've actually met a couple Christians, been talking with them, and, and evolution comes up, and they say, oh, yeah, 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 evolution. Yeah, just so you know, I've got no problem with that, man. It, I studied that in college, you know, read the books. Everything makes sense to me. I got, I got no beef. And I say, oh, okay, well, that's cool. Well, you know, even the evolution of, of human beings and the common ancestry between humans and chimpanzees. And then they look at me like, oh, yeah, no, not that. No, no. Um, <laughs> that that you know, that doesn't make any sense. Uh, I, I don't. Think that's and and I you know and I'll say really, and then I'll I'll ta I'll take them through what I just explained with you know all the molecular evidence and the uh, the shared sequences and the endogenous retroviruses and the, the whole bit, and they'll say yeah yeah okay I mean that makes sense I just. You know, I don't think I can believe that. Then I, I, I've stopped them and I say, well, do you not believe that because you think the science is lacking? Or do you not believe that because it contradicts your faith? In all the times I've had those conversations, they finally admit, yeah, you know, I, I can't believe that because of my faith. So that, I think, is sort of like the last great refuge, even of those those Christians that give themselves over to theistic evolution, I think they do have a tough time in general being okay with the evolution of humans. And as I said, that goes right back to the philosophical or psychological motivation that is behind most of the objections, if not all the objections to evolution on the creationist side, is, is the, uh, the contradiction of the special nature, the divine nature of, of humanity. Well, Dr. Zach, thanks for coming on the show to help us understand evolution. My pleasure. 